1: To get you set up for the market action this morning, here we go. Futures negative 142 on a down, negative 13 points on the S&P 500. It's risk off almost across the board. I talked about that bid going into the Japanese yen. We have a 107 handle on dollar yen. We dropped to 107 spot 64, down by one full percentage point almost. And to round things out in the treasury market for you, yields creeping high yesterday, this time yesterday, now lower by about three basis points to 2.83%. And for the VIX watchers out there, Tom Keane being one of them. We bleed higher. Back to a 27 handle on the VIX. I'm really pleased to say that joining us now is Harm Bandholds, of course, the Unicredit chief U.S. economist on not just the year ahead, but on 2019 as well. Harm, do we need to start thinking about 2019 already? Sure. Um, I mean, it, it looks like 2018
2: is shaping up to be a pretty good year for the global economy, for the U.S. economy, Um at, not, not least to to this huge fiscal fiscal deficit, but um, you know, then you talk about next year. I think what is what the fiscal stimulus is doing is bringing some growth r- growth forward. Plus, um, next year the the recovery will be one of the longest on record, and um, and we we are worried that growth starts to slow down next year, and we may actually downturn in 2020, which makes then well, not least yesterday's budget uh, forecast by the president, you know,
1: s- something that looks way too rosy. Is the good news becoming bad news? Your colleague over in Europe, Eric Nielsen, wrote the following over the weekend. What if the conclusion of the effects of the tax cuts is wrong? What if markets' attention has shifted to see the tax bill as a big piece of seriously irresponsible policy with a key effect being higher yield? It's, It's an important question to ask. Are we seeing a shift in the interpretation, the market bias towards what we're seeing in the United States? that That was a bit the impression that we that we had over the last several well, let's call it weeks,
2: you know when when better numbers um, both on the inflation and economic front, I mean better meaning higher, yeah. numbers on the inflation side, were interpreted by the market that the Fed may actually hike more and that at some point started to scare market participants. So so yeah, you're right. Um, if we also talking about tomorrow's CPI print, I would think a higher number would be worse for the
0: markets than a weaker number. Bundles with us with Unicredit. Good morning, everyone. Um, I need to rip up the script, folks. This is so profoundly important that we've got to do it. We just heard the gentleman from England say Adidas. Uh, the gentleman from America says Adidas. We wouldn't know. What do you say in your Germany? Is it really Adidas or do you say Adidas? No, it's Adidas. In, are you offended that I say Adidas?
2: <laughs> no, I got used to it here. You're, you got you're, used you're, to it?
1: You're the only one that cares about this, Tom.
2: <laughs> uh, I,
0: no, no. This is like, you know, forever, folks. We, You know, what we do in surveillance is whichever fractured language I want to do when I say Sheffield or, you know, other yeah. unpronounceables in England, I fracture Lester. it. Leicester, Yes, very good. And, and uh, John Farrell, you know, Adidas, that was very good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's an import into the United States. Adidas is coming here. Tell us about the import dynamic of Adidas shoes and BMWs as well. Well, I
2: think BMW is first of all the biggest car exporter for the U.S. as well. We must not forget that. So Thank you.
0: All, Did not know that.
2: So, with all the the bashing about all these foreign companies, we must not forget it's, that its biggest plant is so on the East
1: Coast somewhere,
2: there isn't it, Harm? Huh? There you go. <laughs> all the all the X models, I think all of them are produced here, and well, they are they are doing you pretty do, well. The, you you nail yeah, it. it as
0: you do, Harm. You're famous for this. You nail it with facts that shock, like BMW is our biggest exporter.
2: I, we, we 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 try to. Convey the message that facts still matter. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's important. And we, can, you know, as economists, we just can't help looking at these numbers and and some from time to time emphasize them. But but to your question, um, the U.S. problem, as we know, is a huge trade deficit, current account deficit, and um, if you look at the real trade deficit without petroleum goods, um, we have just hit a new record high in terms of deficit. So the, the situation has never been as bad as it is right now, and that. Yeah. I mean, that has in part to do with import dynamics, because we uh, we talked about we have this fiscal stimulus, which supports the domestic economy, domestic demand. And part of that additional domestic demand is satisfied by increased imports. At the same time, the global economy is also doing very well. But the America's real problem is that it's not exporting, that it's not producing the stuff that the rest of the world really Wants so.
1: In other words, its import elasticity is much bigger than its export elasticity. So it's so. It, so with that in mind, Harm, to what extent does the weaker dollar uh, of the last twelve months plus rebalance the trade deficit, if at all?
2: Yeah. If it well, it helps at the margin. There's no doubt about it. But I think the impact is relatively relatively small. I mean, we must not forget the U.S. has had large current account deficits as well when the when euro dollar was at one fifty five. You know, so that shows us that there's much more to it to the issue. than than just the currency. So the currency is always seen as the easy fix. Yeah. But it doesn't fix it. <laughs> you know, it, it, it helps to mitigate the impact. It makes it look a little bit better, maybe. But overall, there, there, there are underlying problems that take much longer to fix. And that's why I think politicians always try the,
1: not not always, sometimes yeah. try the easy way out. There are two deficits to speak of. And the trade deficit is not the one on everyone's mind right now. The, the deficit on everyone's mind right yes. now is the budget deficit. Why all of, all of a sudden has the budget deficit become such an issue for so many people, Han? Huh? <laughs> uh, because uh, what we are seeing right now is, is I would say, is probably the,
2: the most reckless uh, deficit that the U.S. economy really has has had. It's not the highest, but I mean, there were peri- the periods where we had higher deficits where we were also facing big crises. Right now, the unemployment rate is at four percent. We are yep. at or below full employment, or very close to whatever. Um, and that is the time where you actually should start repay some of your debt. Right? And what the U.S. is doing right now, um, we are not only not repaying that, but we are blowing up the deficit. Yeah. And what makes things worse, if you, I mean, it is relatively easy to forecast demographics. That's one of the, the real easy long-term forecasts. And yeah. we know the demographics are against us, are against the deficit because the baby boomers are retiring. So if you look at the CBO's long-term forecast, it shows already without all this stimulus that we had. Federal debt-to-GDP yeah. ratio almost doubling over the next 30 years. So this is the time to prepare for that But that is coming, but we are doing the opposite. Is
0: it okay, John Farrell, if I do a chart out to Bloomberg Radio before anyone you else sees it? I'm doing that right now. I don't now. know I'm, why you asked for my permission no, gotta, you
1: when, you know, when you've basically done it
0: already. It's because you say how Adidas. Uh, you know, it's a real <laughs> non-petroleum trade. Have I ever looked at a real non-petroleum trade deficit? No. Hard bondles, I'm sorry, it borders on a jump condition. Why is our real non-petroleum trade deficit jumping to a worser statistic?
2: Um, well, I mean, I, I, I know well, I know the chart, <laughs> so, so, so the, the, the latest jump looks a little bit suspicious. There's some volatility, okay. but the underlying trend is very obvious, right? Yes, if, if you have it question. in front of you, look at it. So it was very high in, during the housing boom, the deficit, then it narrowed because of the crisis. And when the cri- when the recession was over in the middle of 2009, it started to widen again. And it looks like there is no end to it. And again, forget about the monthly volatility. just put a six-month
1: moving average or what's through it, and there's a pretty linear downward trend. I'm Bandholz, Unicredit Chief U.S. Economist. Really appreciate you uh, catching up with us.
0: Without question, the most important interview of the day. Stanley Collender has helped us so much untangling the fiscal dynamics of Washington and the nation. Right now, we get perspective. On Twitter, at The Budget Guy, he writes for Forbes magazine, Corvus Group as well. Stan, I want you to sum how CBO will deal with the tax cuts, the congressional budget that was passed and signed by the president, and the trump budget yesterday how does an institution that we all rely on, the congressional budget office how do they synthesize those three events
3: uh it's, it's actually pretty simple tom first of all they're going to reject the president's notion that this pays for it that the tax cut pays for itself uh that, that's pretty much common wisdom in everywhere but the white house these days so they're going to they're going to talk about the tax cut as as, as a substantial contributor to the deficit and debt. Uh, Second, they're going to add uh, $400 to $600 billion in in additional spending, and additional debt and deficit because of the spending bill that was uh, passed and agreed to last Friday. Um, And they're going to uh, reject all the president's proposed cuts because they're not likely to happen. Uh, the, so, so what they're going to do is, well, the White House is saying the deficit will fall below a trillion dollars next year. CBO is probably going to get there to about 1.4 trillion and projecting really? going up further. Oh yeah,
0: there are now. This is really important, folks, because we're working with 1.1, 1. 1, 1. 1.2. You're already out at 1.4. Do I understand that correctly?
3: You understand that absolutely correctly, especially when you take the president's uh, overly optimistic economic forecast and substitute something that's more realistic. Um, and well, and and so, so you're going to you're at 1.4 trillion, and you know what, Tom? I know you and I have talked about this for weeks or months or years, but I'm not sure that's going to have the big impact on uh, on the, on politics. So that's 1. right. Where I want to go.
0: Would you explain the why of this? Whether, whether anybody's a liberal, a Democrat, they say Adidas or Adidas. Would you explain to me the why we've lost any sense of frugality in our po- political Washington?
3: Um, because he, this is a Nixon goes to China situation to a certain extent, you had Trump who was promising the world to everybody that uh, I, I can, uh, you know, I, I, I can spend more, I can tax less, and I can balance the budget. Uh, it, it, saying now saying it doesn't make any difference, and besides, it's only temporary. Um, if the Democrats go after the deficit, to uh, they they will end up maybe having to be responsible for it and being hoisted on their own petard. And then you've got groups like the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget that have lost this debate and have no impact whatsoever. So to a certain extent, Tom, this is everybody saying, I want what I want when I want it. And yeah. if something bad happens, I will take care of it later.
1: Stan, certainly there's some politics at play here, a whole lot of politics. But uh, something I want to ask you about, Stan, is what's changed? Because for years, a lot of people said, take advantage of low interest rates, stop worrying about the deficit. The deficit doesn't matter. We have a party in power that's basically said just that, but now we'll All of a sudden, a lot of concern. Why?
3: Well, look, per- Jonathan, I'm going to disagree with your, your premise a little bit. I don't think there's a lot of concern. If there was, the tax bill wouldn't have been enacted to the extent that it was, and the, the spending bill that was, they just went through. Well, well let have me enacted. start again,
1: Stan. The concern not okay. within the Republican Party, the concern outside of the Republican Party. I read op-ed after op-ed through the weekend about how it was dangerous what they were doing for the U.S. economy, and ultimately the deficit was going to get out of control. These concerns not coming from within the Republican Party, coming from outside the Republican Party, when those concerns did not exist several years ago. Years ago.
3: Well, all right. First of all, remember the uh, the uber conservatives, the Freedom Caucus, hated this, uh, this this spending bill, not the tax bill, but the spending bill, and, and and criticized it heavily because of what it would do to the debt and deficit. So there is some internal Republican dissension about this, but to a certain extent, this is just pure politics. This is the party out of power criticizing the power, party in power. Um, And and I'm not sure that the the, the concern doesn't exist. It's just a little uh, taking a back seat. Trust me, when interest rates start to rise, the same people who aren't saying anything bad about the debt and deficit increases will be the ones pointing the finger at the politicians saying, you should have told us. You should have done something about it. You should have prevented this.
1: Well, Stan, help me take away the politics. Drain the politics out of it. I don't want to politicize the deficit anymore. I want to talk about the economics of it. Why should we be concerned about 5% of GDP?
3: Um, well, first of all, it's coming. You're, it's not just five percent of GDP. It's adding all that additional fuel on top of, a, of an economy that's already pr- pretty much uh, heavily stoked. Um, I'm not sure, from a Keynesian point of view, you would you would want you would recommend that this type of additional stimulus be do, done at this particular time. Yeah. Um, and and second, um, it really is going to limit I'm, – I'm looking a little bit longer term from an from econo- economic and policy point of view – it's really going to limit the ability of the United States to respond to any new needs, whether it's a – forest fire or a tornado or a a nuclear holocaust type situation um, or even an economic downturn unless there's a stomach a a, a willingness to accept deficits in the two to three trillion dollar range.
0: John brings up an important point Stan which we got to walk through right now which is this tip point of five percent GDP. I don't buy it for a minute. My study of this and listening to guys like you for the years is 3% GDP is in the realm of frugal, normal, whatever. So we go from three to five, which is I believe a 50 or 60% increase in deficit to GDP. Isn't five a pretty moldy number?
3: Yeah, no, I think so, Tom. And, and part of the new normal is what you were just saying. Um, you know, I because I, I know you commented on it. I wrote a column in Forbes that said the new yeah. normal is, is exactly what you're saying, which is, first of all, tolerance for higher deficits annually. Yeah, but, high, but the
0: markets won't, quote, unquote, have tolerance, will they? Well, right now we're seeing a little bit of gyration,
3: and we're blaming it without any real proof about higher interest rates. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen whether the bond market vigilantes are going to be coming back in force. These are the folks who uh, forced Bill Clinton to revise his budget plans uh, because with higher interest right. rates. Um, it, but that is the political statistic. That's the one that will right. cross the economic and political barrier.
0: I, I know John wants to dive in here with wisdom, but what happens if Pharaoh's wrong and we get the 6% deficit to GDP? What's the difference between 5 the new normal, and 6
3: Well, it's look, and and I got to tell you, since we've never really been here before, that is in good economic times, getting to that level, I'm not sure that we know the answer definitively. But at some point, whether it's six or six and a half or five and a quarter, yeah. at some point the markets are going to respond and respond negatively to what's going on. At some point, foreign investors are going to say, enough, I've, I've had enough US debt, I can't I can't be sure you're ever going to pay it back at 100% on the dollar.
1: I, I want to be clear here, it's not about the concern of, say, five or six, it's the direction of travel, Tom. And I think that ultimately should be the concern. There was a budget deficit of GDP in the UK of 5% just a couple of years ago, but the reason the market would give the UK the benefit of the doubt was, one, the Bank of still had a big presence, and two, there was an effort to close that gap. I think to Stan's point, the real concern, get rid of all the political drama, all the hysteria around this deficit of $1 trillion, the real concern is not now, not potentially next year, but the next downturn when the fiscal options are exhausted at a time that the monetary policy options have been exhausted mm-hmm. as well. Stan, is that way you're thinking as well? It's not in the here and now, it's the direction of travel, and the ultimate destination could be messy and exacerbated by the next downturn.
3: Uh, no no exactly right um, that is the, in fact Mick Mulvaney the OMB director said yesterday or the day before that there was likely to be a sugar high with the economy short term but remember politicians in the United States only think short term they're only thinking until the next election and at some point it's going to be someone's problem but maybe not the current office holders to deal with the next downturn of some kind and, and our options like you just said are exactly limited I want to expand that one more way well, what do you tell millennials who are going to end up having to pay for this what do you tell them about about the government's ability to yep. deal with their problems 10 or 15 years down the road.
1: You're, you're spot on, Stan. And, Tom, this is a big issue. It's the biggest intergenerational wealth transfer in history that we're witnessing, not just in the United States of America, but across Europe and within the United Kingdom as well. And at some point, someone's going to pick up the bill, and the one that's got to pick up the bill would not have reaped the rewards yeah. of the uh, of the last yeah. decade or so, Tom.
0: Well, it'll be interesting. Stan Collender, thank you so much. Uh, the budget guy with Corvus ML, MSL Group uh, as well. Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs wants to speak about the deficit, a number of other things she sees in the greater American economy, but we must start with these markets. Abby Joseph Cohen is Goldman Sachs advisory director, senior investment strategist. Abby, I want to get out the gossip out of the way. I have vetted this, and I know with your attachment to the Brookings Institution, you're familiar with Mr. Bernanke, and now Chair Yellen goes over there as well. I would think Jay Powell could get you to come down to be vice chairman of the Fed by just giving you the right seats over Ovechkin's shoulders for the Washington Capitals on a power play. I mean, w- would you think about being vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System?
4: Um, I think it's fair to say, Tom, that you and I are not making those decisions. But but thank you for suggesting it. I, um, w- when it comes to the Washington <clears throat> Capitals, though, um, why don't we talk about, The Olympics instead. It's a Um, a
0: difficult year, to say the least.
4: Yeah. yeah, um, You know, we're seeing phenomenal figure skating. The women in particular are just absolutely extraordinary. They're artists. They're athletes. Um, And when it comes to the Capitals, there were four figure skating coaches who recently watched the Caps play, and they said only one. That's the center. If Jenny Kuznetsev might might make a good figure sk- skater, and the rest of them just didn't have very good technique. And their folks, they
0: ha- a window they have into power. A window into Abby Joseph Cohen. And I think your combination of financial acumen and economics would put you on the list with Dr. Ellerin, John Farrell. Who else is on the list for vice chairman? Rich Clarida. Rich of Clarida. Kinko, and and, and, the, others and well. San Francisco
1: yeah. Fed President Mr. Williams up there yeah. as well. They're, they're your top three, yeah. Tom.
0: Abby, let us address the markets. Uh, they were clearly over exuberant, if you will, and down we go. Have you changed your long tone on owning equities at this time?
4: Well, let's begin with fundamentals, which is where we always begin. How is the economy doing, corporate profits? How does that feed into valuation and so on? And just a reminder that for the past several months, the estimate from Goldman Sachs has been that the year-end price target for the S&P 500 would be about 2850 based upon our above consensus view on corporate profits and so on. And before this correction began, let's assume it maintains its status as a correction. The S&P was at 2873, so we were there. And I would just remind your listeners that you need to have valuation support to be at sustained high levels because if it's already priced for perfection – there can be any number of factors that will knock you off kilter. And I think that's what has happened. And there are a number of factors. Some of them may prove transitory. Some of them uh, may have longer legs. And and, and I think it's important to, to chat about them. So, for example, there are some people talking about the technical aspects of what happened over the last week or two. Yeah. Uh, the absence of share buybacks, for example, because corporations weren't able uh, to step in and buy back their shares um, be- because of legal restrictions where they were in reporting season. Uh, the role of ETFs, uh, the role of individual investors who may have panicked in uh, to the market at the end of 2017 and then got um, a-, a little skittish. I prefer, as you well know, Tom, to look at the intermediate and longer-term issues. Mm -hmm. And those, to me, uh, there are some concerns. Um, You know, when we get within this range of what we think fair value is, we really need to focus on what some of the uh, catalysts uh, might be, both positive and negative. And on the negative side, quite frankly, um, government policy coming out of Washington, to my eye, is not supportive of sustainable, intermediate, and long-term economic growth. Um, Combination of changes in the tax policy, the new budget proposal, the infrastructure proposal, and recent changes in trade policy, these are not beneficial in my view. Uh, for intermediate and long-term growth.
1: Jonathan here. Before we get into the long-term fundamentals, I do want to ask you a question about investor psychology. Um, Mohamed Aaron and others asking this question after the volatility of last week, whether the conditioning of the last few years, buy the dip, buy the dip, get rewarded to buy the dip, has punctured dramatically and changed enough that we break out into a new regime where investors aren't conditioned, rewarded, just to buy the dip all the time. Has that shifted a little bit?
4: I don't deal uh, directly with individual investors, so it would be presumptuous of me uh, to to make a judgment. But I would basically say that beginning in the summer of 2009, what was priced into the stock market, if you reverse engineered the valuation models, was basically at least five years of recession. It, what, was based, what was baked in was at least five years of ongoing annual 10% declines in S&P earnings. What's priced in at 2850, what's priced in at the prices we had a couple of weeks ago, would be several years of ongoing profit growth and no recession. So when you have an environment in which what's priced in is really ugly, and what turns out to be is less ugly, right? Share prices well, can rise. I want to pin what,
0: you, I want to pin you down on this, Abby, because of time. Are you fully invested, or have you increased an Abby Joseph Cohen cash position?
4: Um, I never discuss, if you will, my personal portfolio. If that's what you're asking, if you're asking the Goldman Sachs,
0: the position, Goldman Sachs view, you know your let position. Me, let
4: me let me be very clear, and that okay. is, we remain concerned about fixed income. We think that bonds will be rising in yield, i.e. declining in price. And we see this not just in the United States, but around the world. And so for us to see what has happened over the last couple of weeks in which fixed income uh, prices declined, and then Mm -hmm. equity investors said, well, wait, that's not good for equity valuation. That should not have been a a surprise to anyone. I would also point out, interestingly, that the Goldman Sachs interest rate forecast that there would likely be four increases in short-term interest rates this year because we thought the economy would grow, wages would rise, inflation would rise. That is now become the consensus
0: view. Okay. But When we get to our next section, we want to talk bigger and broader, but I've got to ask you about the sudden change in our fiscal policy. Our last guest called it a Nixon goes to China moment. Do you see the new fiscal legislation of this nation as a Nixon goes to China moment?
4: I do not. Um, Nixon goes to China, although I had not heard that expression mm-hmm. before, was recognizing Uh, The reality of the growing importance of China and Nixon coming from the Republican Party, along with Mr. Kissinger, who was very strong, obviously, uh, in his views, could move forward on this. When I take a look at the changes in fiscal policy right now, I think that there is a high degree of, um, I'll call it, lack of responsibility.
0: Well, that was delicate as well. Who's going to be the adult in the room in Washington, Abby Joseph Cohen?
4: We're going to need many adults, and we're going to need them on, from both parties.
1: Abby-, Abby Joseph Cohen, Advisory Director at Goldman Sachs and Senior Investment Strategist.
0: Right now, folks, and and this is a great joy to bring in a book I'm reading cover to cover. I will not mince words. It is likely to be my book of the summer. It is The Threat Matrix. It is 650 pages. It is thick, thick, thick. And joining us, Garrett Graff of the remarkable accomplishment. It is a page turner. Garrett Graff, wonderful to have you with us. How do you make a history of the Federal Bureau of Investigation that thick, and a page-turner at the same time. How did you go about writing The Threat Matrix?
5: Thanks for the kind words. So this book grew out of actually uh, my fascination with Bob Mueller uh, in the late 2000s, sort of long before he became a national figure. Um, but sort of just as he was becoming the longest-serving FBI director since J. Edgar Hoover himself. And I was just sort of fascinated by the extent to which the FBI under him had, in the years since 9-11, transformed from a domestic law enforcement agency into an international intelligence agency and sort of what globalization and technology had done to change J. Edgar Hoover's FBI.
0: One of the great things about him out of St. Paul's and with his work at Princeton and on is a singular moment early in your book where the Marine, distinguished Marine out with, with true combat duty in Vietnam, his life changes in that warehouse in Lockerbie, Scotland. How did the special counsel change when he walked into where they were reconstructing that Pan Am plane in Lockerbie?
5: Uh, This is is really one of the the big turning points in Bob Mueller's career. Uh, You know, we we sort of forget now uh, just how long Bob Mueller has been uh, involved in public service. I mean, he's spent almost 50 years of his life now working for the Department of Justice and was in the early... Uh, the years of the George H.W. Bush administration, the head of the criminal division uh, at the Justice Department. And so he was the person ultimately in charge of prosecuting the Pan Am 103 bombing and the investigation. And, and it was... For him walking mm-hmm. into that warehouse, as you mentioned, in Lockerbie, where they were collecting the right. the, the plane pieces from that terrible bombing, was, was it a real turning point for him about sort of his search for justice in, in the world? And then also the, uh, an up-close and personal... Uh, uh, moment about the power of international terrorism and sort of what a what a force that was and, and most people don't realize right. that he has been intimately involved in that case ever since and you know even uh, would uh, would you know shows up on December 21st every year for the uh, the memorial service at Arlington Cemetery.
0: Right. Uh, Garrett, you are ensconced in Vermont as far as you can from the madness of Washington. When you see the coverage of Mr. Mueller's affairs as special counsel with the president, with all the different players involved, just the beltway noise that we see, how do you respond? What is the thing that all of the media gets wrong about the gentleman that helped build the threat matrix?
5: Well, I think the thing that is most important to understand or that I find sort of most fascinating about Bob Mueller is just how clear his moral compass is and sort of just how straight it is. I call him, uh, you know, America's straightest arrow. And, you know, sort of all of this partisan uh, wrangling about him, you know, he is in Washington about as apolitical a figure as there possibly could be. I mean, he was, uh, he's held top jobs and been appointed to top jobs in all five of the last presidential administrations, uh, Reagan, both Bushes, Clinton and Obama. And his most recent appointment, uh, a two-year extension, uh, an unprecedented special act of Congress to extend him for two years as FBI director, passed the U.S. Senate 100 to 0.
2: Garrett, can you speak about the FBI and its attacks uh, on cyber, uh, uh, cyber attacks, and what the FBI is doing and what kind of constraints it works under?
5: Yeah, it's a good question, and it's come up, you know, obviously a lot in, in the context of special counsel. We're we're, we're learning a lot more, uh, the, the general public is learning a lot more about surveillance law than I think any of us ever anticipated. The FBI is about 10 years into taking cybercrime seriously. Um, it, the Secret Service was really the leader on cybercrime in the early years of the 2000s after... Uh, 9-11 sent the FBI focused on terrorism. But the FBI is now very deeply engaged in in cybercrime and uh, both on the nation state side. I mean, we've seen some fascinating prosecutions uh, against Iranian hackers, Chinese hackers, Russian hackers. Um, And then also uh, some tremendous work by the FBI, the Secret Service, and, and actually HSI, the ICE, Homeland Security Investigations Agency uh, against sort of global cybercrime, which, uh, you know, for, for a business audience is, is one of the fastest growing sectors in business, unfortunately. I mean, the uh, Justice Department just this week announced the takedown of a $500 million cybercrime organization.
2: Garrett, uh, your most recent book, I believe, Raven Rock. Uh, yep. Can you just describe for people the essence of that book and why it might be so compelling today.
5: Yeah, this was a, a book uh, that came out last year, Raven Rock. Uh, The story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die that I had originally thought was going to be a a real history book. And, And it's the story of the U.S. government's doomsday plans during the Cold War, sort of all of the strange things that would have happened during and after a nuclear attack and the mountain bunkers and secret plans to suspend the Constitution and other strange plans that the government came up with. Uh, But unfortunately, it has turned into a a modern history, Uh, you know, modern nonfiction as uh, we struggle with the North Korea threat and once again begin to try to remember what we're supposed to do. Uh, in the event of an incoming nuclear attack. Um, The the modern version of the "Burt the Turtle duck and cover drills from the 1950s and 1960s.
0: Garrett, we hope to speak to you over the coming months and quarters as Mr. Mueller's in the news with this and that investigation. How did you respond when the president tried to parse the difference between the FBI agents and FBI leadership? That doesn't ring true through your book, does it?
5: The FBI leadership is largely uh, agents, it's, it's people who have worked their way up through the ranks and came to the organization, uh, you know, with that same uh, dedication to public service and uh, the pursuit of justice. Uh, that that motivates the rank and file agents as well. Um, you know, no. I think sort of one of the the shames of the attack on Andy McCabe, the um, now uh, former deputy director. Right. Is, you know, Andy McCabe uh, was a career uh, nonpartisan public servant. Uh, you know, someone who, who dedicated his life actually to uh, to all things of fighting Russian organized crime.
0: Let's leave it there. Garrett Graff, uh, Garrett Graff, rather, hope to speak to you again. I can't say enough, folks, about The Threat Matrix. Full disclosure, Bloomberg Surveillance Disclosure. It is a thick, thick, thick book, but boy, does it read like a wonderful page. I really can't say enough about it. I put it out on Twitter a couple times here, and will do so again. Garrett Graff with The Threat Matrix. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast.